Welcome to On Meaning. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. Today's conversation is with Mick Cooper, who is a professor at Roehampton University in the UK. This discussion with Mick is meant to provide an overview of existential psychotherapy, which is a school of psychotherapy that is based on some ideas from, surprise, surprise, existential philosophy. You know, the school of thought that is sometimes grossly oversimplified to, there's no meaning in life. Mick provides some color on the origins of the ideas, and we specifically discuss some of the philosophers who are particularly influential. It's important to note that given the way the school of therapy evolved, that is with no specific founder, that resulted in there being many different variations in thought relative to other schools. A quick example, in terms of psychoanalytic therapy, someone like Sigmund Freud is very much seen as the founder and originator of that school of thought, and a lot of folks studied with him specifically who were the first psychoanalysts. There isn't the exact equivalent in existential therapy. Though a lot of details may vary, schools of existential therapy look to explore and focus on our existence, on our being. That's opposed to looking more towards high-level frameworks that are supposed to be set across many different people. Mick and I talk about a variety of relevant thinkers, from Kierkegaard to Heidegger to Sartre to Yalom, among others. You'll also get to hear me butcher at least one name. You'll have to listen to figure out which. As part of covering Irvin Yalom, we get into his existential or ultimate concerns. Death, isolation, freedom, and meaninglessness. One of the things about existential therapy that appeals most to me is that while there may be no inherent meaning in life, we have the freedom to choose to either find a meaning in our circumstance or to create meaning if we're lucky enough to have the opportunity to do so. And we can also choose to commit to the process of finding and refining that meaning as a lifelong endeavor. As part of that process, we have to explore various facets of ourselves and our existence in the world. My hope for this conversation is to provide a foundation for some of the topics that we're going to be digging into in the coming months. And a quick note of housekeeping before getting to the interview. If you want to touch base, please feel free to reach out on meaningpodpod at gmail.com or the handle on meaningpodpod is the same on Twitter, Instagram, and possibly Facebook. Feel free to reach out with your thoughts or suggestions for topics you might want to hear about. I'm also going to be organizing a reading club and discussion group soon, so follow me on social media or on our website onmeaningpod.com to learn more. The journey that is this podcast starts with the discussions that I want to have, but a big hope of mine is really to surface ideas from the community that I'm building and to really bring people together to discuss these kinds of questions. If you want to learn more about that, you can hear the About the Podcast or why I'm doing this episodes. But that's enough of a preamble for now, so without further ado, here's the interview with Mick. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today to start off the conversation. Do you mind just sharing your name and your professional title? Yeah, hi, Eugene. My name is Mick Cooper. I'm a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Roehampton in South London. Great, thanks, and I really appreciate you joining today, Mick. Thanks, Eugene. So to start off the conversation, very high level, how would you define existential psychotherapy? 
Well, it's maybe not the most complex definition, but existential therapies are therapeutic approaches based based on existential philosophy. We spent a long time trying to define it, and that's about the best definition we got to. It's it's a it's ways of working therapeutically, counselling psychotherapy based on the ideas, concepts of existential philosophers. Uh, so that raises the question of what is existential philosophy? That was going to be the natural follow-up. Yeah, <laughs> which which is itself a pretty mixed field, actually. I mean, there's lots of different existential philosophers, Heidegger, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard. But it's a, it's, a, it's a school of thought which asks this question about what is existence? What does it mean to exist? And really tries to focus on, I guess, our individual existences rather than coming into maybe laws about human nature is this or human nature is that and trying to reduce people down to kind of laws and mechanisms in the ways that some forms of psychology or or, or therapy uh, tend to do. Existentialism tries to focus on these questions of our individual existences. Eugene, what does it mean for me and you here now to exist, to be? What's that like? How do we experience it? And what is the meaning of it? is a key question in the existential field. So existential therapists have taken those kind of questions and concerns and perspectives and applied that to work with clients. And of course, that, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, when clients come in, the first thing we say to them is, you know, what is the meaning of your existence? And, you know, how do you, how do you know that you're here? But what it does mean, I mean, a lot of what existential therapists do is what all therapists do, which is to listen, to explore, to, to invite people to explore their lives. But I guess it has a particular uh, perspective and, and is informed by those existential ideas to, to different degrees. There's lots of different existential therapies. Some would take a more prescribed approach and maybe be a bit more active in exploring questions around meaning, uh, how people feel about their mortality, freedom is another big existential question. Others are very descriptive. Client would come in and you'd really be exploring how they experience their lives, what's going on exploring it in, in, in a very generic form of a better word way and just be slightly sensitized to some of these maybe more, more deeper existential questions. And I remember you mentioning in a, in a lecture that you did at Weekend University that the kind of pluralistic element of existentialism and also the fact that because existential therapy, unlike, say, a psychoanalytic under Freud or unlike a specific school that developed with a single person, the roots of existential therapy are a little more distributed and spread out as opposed to being consolidated under a specific individual. Do you think that reason that the origins of existential therapy are coming from a few different angles, is that why there's more openness towards this pluralism? Or are those kind of the pluralism and the origins just separate questions? It's definitely part of it. I mean, most therapies start with one person and existential therapy is kind of unique, I think, in that there isn't one founder. So you've got different people in different places at different points in time drawing on existential ideas and applying them to therapy. And that means some of the approaches, uh, like Frankel developed an existential approach called logotherapy, are almost entirely different from, say, Ronnie Lang, who, who applied existential ideas in the UK. So it's partly around that there wasn't any founder. It's partly that existentialism does focus on kind of being authentic, being ourselves, not conforming, not just doing what everybody else does. So by its very nature, existential therapists haven't been particularly concerned about coming together and defining an approach, that there's a lot of uniqueness and individuality in the approach itself. 
So I think that's another probably reason why it's a pretty diverse. Existentialism is a lot about, it's a kind of moving against systematization. You know, a lot of philosophy, psychology is about systemizing things, putting things in boxes, putting things in order, which is, has got a real value. But existential philosophy and ideas is a kind of reminder that that doesn't explain everything and that we need to hold on to the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of individuals. Uh, and that not everything can be explained or put into boxes. So existential therapies haven't particularly put their therapies into boxes. It, it, that is left it, then they've been quite happy to leave it as a diverse field. Gotcha. And in the future, I will try to feature some folks who are specifically coming from and purely focusing on the philosophical elements of, of existential philosophers. But at least to get the, you know, to, to help this early conversation, do you mind just mentioning who were some of the influential philosophers involved in, in the beginning movement that, of what became existential therapy? Well, we actually did some research on this and we um, asked practitioners in, of existential therapies who were the thinkers that had most influenced their practice. And the one that comes up most strongly is Martin Heidegger, who was a philosopher in the first part of the 20th century, although he, he went on writing into the 50s and 60s. Now, he's, he's perhaps one of the most influential philosophers across many different kind of philosophies in the 20th century because he really asked this question about what is existence what what is this thing called being he, he felt that philosophers had, had, had been asking what the the whatness of something about kind of you know if we ask a question like what is morality we focus on morality if we ask what is a human being we focus on the human being but what gets lost is the question about what is isness i mean it's a kind of strange question to ask but what do we mean when we say something is what is this thing called existence that we just kind of take for granted like the air around us we we, we were so familiar with existence we never really ask what it means but he was saying it was only in the earlier Greek philosophers that were really asking this question and that we need to go back to it. So he was very important. And he then comes up with a number of different ways of thinking about existence. For instance, he says that our existence is always immersed in the world, that it's not separate. We're not like these snooker balls, these billiard balls that are all separate and sometimes bumping into each other, that more that our existence is a kind of openness to each other. And he says about the way that our existence is, he emphasizes that it has a kind of beginning and an end, that we're thrown into this world, this social world, but it also our individual existences come to an end. And that we often act, he, he, he kind of felt that we were thrown into this world, our existence emerges in this world, and he uses world thrownness. And that often we live our lives lost in the kind of morass, our existences are kind of lost in the morass of all these other existences. And we don't really ask the question about what is my existence and what does my existence mean? And he felt that if we recognize that our existences end, our mortality, we can bring more into sharper relief, my particular existence and, and, and what it means for me to exist and maybe regain something of some authenticity. Although he always felt we were always lost in the social world. And then you have Sartre, who has also been very influential and particularly Sartre's focus on freedom and the idea that to be, to exist, is to be free. And that we have this, you know, Sartre wasn't saying we can just do whatever we want. There's numerous limitations. We have political, social, economic limitations. We have historical limitations. We're in a particular time. Uh, physical limitations that we're in a particular body. But within those restrictions, there is always the possibility for freedom and choice. 
And uh, existential therapists often use those kind of ideas to help clients, patients think about what freedom and choices that they do have. And of course, that's not about saying to clients, you can do whatever you want here. It's up to you. If you're struggling, it's your fault. But it's about helping them recognize where there may be some choices um, and explore those possibilities. For me, my personally, my favorite of the existential philosophers was Martin Buber. Now, he, he particularly focuses on relationality. Same question, what is existence? But for Buber, our existences are fundamentally connected with others. We are always in relation to others. But Buber introduces this very important distinction between what he calls the I-thou stance towards others, which is where we treat the other as a vibrant, living subjectivity uh, that we relate to in a respectful and a valuing way, the thou. And he contrasts that with the I-it stance, which is a much more uh, mechanistic, systematized way where we look at the other and, and, and we treat the other as an it. And that we it's, it's a more kind of dehumanizing stance. In mental health field, for instance, it's where we see the other perhaps just as their diagnosis or just as a set of mechanisms. We, we, we lose touch with a complex subjectivity of the other in a sense the i thou defines i think what it means to hold an existential stance which is to try and engage with the other as a complex subjectivity there's been some um people like franz fanon use similar ideas then to to talk about for instance racism and the way that in in racism the the existence of the other the existence of the the person from from black or other marginalized communities is really objectified to the point where their humanity is lost. Simone de Beauvoir talked then about gender and, and applied similar ideas around gender and, and, and the way that women are subjugated in our society. So there's a number of kind of core philosophers and other philosophers who have taken these ideas and applied them to different ways of thinking about people and, and to wider, which I think is one of the strengths of the existential approach, the wider political and social issues to understand how and and i think ultimately for me existentialism is is an ethic more than anything else it's an ethic it's an ethic which is about relating to the other as a human being first and foremost rather than reducing the other down to a a, a thing uh, which can happen in political systems it can happen in 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 scientific or social science systems where we positivism that thinks about the other in, in very mechanistic terms. It can happen in religious systems where people just become part of a mass rather than having these individual relationships. Kierkegaard, another very important existential philosopher, was very concerned about that, the way that religion can dehumanize and we lose a, a kind of individual relationship with something, spirituality. But I think in all these ways, existentialists have always said, let's not lose touch with that in individual the uniqueness of that person's existence and i think for me that's an ethical question more than anything else yeah, and i find it interesting as someone who's still relatively new to the to the world and a body of literature surrounding existential therapy but there's this potential tension between the focus on our individual uniqueness and more of these social aspects that inherently involve other other people and I think that once you dig deep enough, you see how these two separate threads always come back to each other of recognizing your own uniqueness involves understanding your kind of role in a wider set. But yeah, how, how do you see the resolution between this very personal, selfish, inward focus of like, who am I and what's my point of life versus 
who are all these other, you know, uh, as uh, Sheldon Solomon says, all these other culturally constructed meat puppets around me and why, why should I relate to them? So, yeah, how, how do you see the consolidation of that tension? It's a very good point, Eugene. And I think to some extent, different existentialists see it very differently. So some do focus more on the individual element. I don't think anyone would focus on the kind of, you know, no, I don't think anybody goes down the Ayn Rand route of we're all individuals and we have to focus on our own individual selfish kind of, and that's a good thing. But I mean, Sartre, who perhaps focuses more on individuality and freedom more than anyone else, was very progressive, not just in his thoughts, but in his actions and, and later went on to more collective ways of understanding it. I think that certainly in the therapeutic field, most of the existential therapies take a fairly relational standpoint and they would see that our relatedness to others as a starting point. I mean, not all Yalom, who's, who's perhaps one of the best known over the existentialist, really, fo- his starting point is that we are all individuals fundamentally alone and that one of the existential uh, givens that we have to come to terms with is our aloneness from others or isolation but i think that particularly with the rise of postmodern thinking and social constructionism which is and wittgenstein and heidegger goes down this route again emphasizing the role of language in our fundamental interconnectedness with others i think it's hard to make the case to say that we are isolated individuals most existential philosophers therapists i think these days would tend to hold the position that we are all interconnected and that our distinctiveness is always bounded by that interconnectedness and that there's a, a distinctiveness in relationship with others and that our, our lives are lived in relation to others. Some emphasize that more than others, but I think most would certainly see in therapy that a, a key part of the existential work is the therapeutic relationship. And the evidence shows that very strongly as well, that the quality of the therapeutic relationship is one of the best predictors of outcomes in in therapy. So it's clearly empirically as well as philosophy, philosophically uh, an important issue. And I wanted to follow up to something you had brought up, and I, I don't want to take us down too far of a tangent, but I, I remember coming across it in some of the reading and preparation that I was doing for this interview. I believe you've also done some work exploring the role that language plays and and looking at some philosophers along lines of Derrida and whatnot. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Or... A little bit. I couldn't claim any expertise there. I've written a little bit about it. I mean, and these are, you know, so these are some of the more postmodern philosophers who have written about language. And again, I think, I guess the argument is that existential, if, if we focus on our existence and what our existence is, and, and for instance, Eugene, how you and I are experiencing things right now and what's going on for us at that very immediate here and now level then something that infuses it and is fundamentally running through everything is language. That if we didn't have language that we wouldn't be able to have this conversation, we, we would be, but it's not just that we would, you know, be sitting in our room <laughs> doing something. That, I mean, our whole being would be fundamentally different without language. And of course, language isn't something that you and I created and then just happened to be speaking the same language. We have internalized and been immersed in a language system that precedes us and will carry on outside of us. So in that sense, our being is, is, is infused with language. And I think what Derrida says is that we can never really outstand outside of language and we can never know being from outside of language. And in fact, he's quite critical of Heidegger and a lot of his work is a response to Heidegger. Uh, and the idea that there is this thing called existence even, 
I think Darida would make the point that that's also bounded by language so that we can never get outside of language. It's like those, I don't know if you know, remember in the circuses, they have those bikes that go round and round and round on a wheel of death. It's just that idea that however fast we go, we're still caught up in something. We don't know what being would be outside of language. And that's been a key philosophical question uh, of the 20, 20th century. Yeah, and in general, one of the elements of existential therapies and, you know, Ernest Becker's Denial of Death was one of the first formal texts that I worked through in this space. You, the, the whole question of the role of a larger social narrative, you know, taking some of the language of, of Heidegger or Kierkegaard or any of the other folks that you've mentioned so far, it, you know, what is the authentic life? How is it discovering this true individual authenticity as opposed to just playing this larger uh, this larger game that is kind of the social cultural norm. So I, I find that, you know, the, an interesting comparison there to what you were just saying with some of the, the postmodern, the tensions with postmodernism and language is that, well, where, how could we possibly define, uh, create a line between the social construction that is language and the social construction that is knowledge and these kind of larger narratives that we've been playing into and I guess as a as a therapist, an actual practitioner who's looking to help clients, is this already getting off to such a, a, a theoretical level that it just doesn't have as much applicability when working with someone to help them figure out how to address meaning in their life? I mean, it, it's a great point. And I think that certainly if you roll back a few decades, 60s, 70s, I think this question of authenticity and of being ourselves and of standing back from the crowd the one not doing everything that everybody else does is certainly one that many of the existential philosophers emphasized and also humanistic. In the States, I mean, in the States, existentialism is often very closely related to humanism. And that's actually a much bigger school of psychotherapy with people like Carl Rogers, who was very, very influential, probably the most influential of all American psychologists. Uh, and then other people like Fritz Perls, who developed Gestalt therapy, burn transactional analysis. And there what you see is a very strong emphasis on this idea of being yourself. And the aim of psychotherapy is to be authentic, to be yourself, not to be dependent on others, not to feel, not to follow in the wake of others, but more to identify, discover, uh, and live according to your own true, unique, individual, authentic being. I think those kind of ideas have, have tempered down a bit. I think that's partly because maybe of the emergence of social constructionism, postmodernism, although obviously most therapists, let alone most clients, won't be necessarily immersing themselves in those ideas. But I think that they have maybe infused our culture, moved us a bit away from this language of authenticity. I think, certainly in work with clients, helping clients to identify what's true for them and how they see things is an important part of any therapeutic work that somebody might say, well, my mum tells me I don't get angry. But then you'd be working with a client to think about, well, let's look at your experiences. Do you actually get angry? Or, uh, you know, what do you actually experience? Uh, your friends tell you, if you work in school, your friends say you shouldn't be scared about something. But what what is actually the truth of that? Do you, Maybe you do get scared about things and maybe that's something we work with. So I think in therapy, you're always working with somebody to help them recognize what is true for them rather than perhaps what they've been told about by other people. But I think, you know, if I think about it in my own work, it, that's a part of it. 
it's it's not this idea of self pitted against society is is certainly in my experience is not the dominant part of therapeutic enterprise. I think it's too polarized in some way, and I think it's too kind of demonizing, dismissive of the other. You know, we know that the the world around us, our fr- I mean, for instance, our friends in terms of mental health and mental well being, friends and social support are a massively important component of well being that people don't do so well when they're very isolated and cut off. So often the work is maybe more about establishing connections, relatedness, uh, that that more Buberian perspective, I think, about being with others is perhaps more seen these days uh, across most therapies. I think certainly in the psychodynamic therapies, the idea of attachment and the importance of attachment and attachment relationship, I'd say that's more of an emphasis across most therapies about the importance of having good relationships rather than an emphasis on freeing ourselves from kind of re-establish some individuality. Obviously there's issue, I mean, codependency would be the emphasis on some work and not being codependent, assertiveness and being able to talk to others and tell others what we need. That shows good, good, good evidence of being related to outcomes. So there are elements of that, but I think the overall spirit of a lot of therapy is more towards relatedness rather than towards individuality. That makes a lot of sense. And coming back to some of the core elements of existential therapies and taking uh, Irvin Yalom's kind of four, I believe he called them critical, ultimate concerns or critical concerns, but with the topics of uh, death meaninglessness, loneliness, and lack of responsibility, if I'm not butchering those four. Do you see that as something that is a kind of common core, let's say, across all of the different uh, facets of existential therapy? Or is that just one specific avenue of how to look at these existential questions? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of both, but I think it's closer to being one specific perspective. So Yellum's approach, as you say, that he writes about beautifully and brilliantly in his book, Existential Psychotherapy in 1980, is the idea that deep in our, con- our unconscious, we are all aware of these four ultimate concerns, that we're mortal, that we're going to die. And he, he, he writes, the book focuses more on that than any other, I think, existential text. And it's a key resource for any existential therapist, without a doubt. I think it was actually the second most influential book in the field in our research. That was after Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It was Yalom's Existential Psychotherapy. And it's a brilliant book. I don't think anyone would question that. So he says that ultimately, we all know that we're going to die, that we are free and that we have choices and that we're responsible, uh, that we're isolated, that we are alone in the world and that life is ultimately meaningless. And that we kind of all know that and we spend a lot of our, lives trying to kind of run away from those facts so we do things like to protect ourselves against the idea uh, the the anxiety or feeling that we're, we're we're fundamentally alone just as we mentioned before we maybe form codependent relationships uh, or to protect ourselves from the fact that we're going to die we believe that there's somebody who's going to rescue us and we develop this idea of um a savior a hero that, that that's going to exist out there that we then become maybe dependent on or, or we we believe is going to be the savior to our problem but actually very much along the lines of psychoanalytic theory that these defenses against our anxiety actually cause more problems than they help that codependency has its problems a belief in an ultimate rescuer creates a sense of even more anxiety maybe when we feel that these person are going to let us down 
And therefore, the ultimate aim of psychotherapy is to face up to these ultimate existential concerns, to accept them, and to deal with them in a in a more rational, more mature way. For instance, to say, "Yeah, I am alone in the world, but um, I can, you know, I, I I can live with that. I'm going to die, but I'm going to make the most of my life." So that's what Yellum says. Now, I think that general idea that there are certain existential givens that we all need to come to terms with. Most existential therapists would probably agree with that. But the difference with Yalom is that Yalom very much sees these as underlying our behaviours and that would use quite an interpretive analytical approach as a way, for instance, as a very famous case in his brilliant book, Love's Executioner, which is a series of case studies that is called The Fat Lady, which is about a woman who has, has weight problems and eventually comes to see that being overweight for her is a defense against the reality of death because she saw her father getting very thin. And, and, and it is this kind of investigative approach, this archaeological approach where you dig down and you eventually find the causes, the reasons for people's problems in these existential concerns. I think for a lot of existential therapists, they wouldn't so much believe in this archaeological model, partly because in some ways it's actually quite causal. And a lot of existential therapists want to get away from the idea that there's these mechanistic causes that X happens and that causes Y and then Y causes Z, that they work in a more what's called phenomenological way, which is about focusing on experiencing. So the idea that under an unconscious, I mean, a lot of existential therapists are very critical of the idea of the unconscious, including Sartre, who kind of saw it as a form of bad faith, not really taking responsibility itself by saying, you know, it's my unconscious, my behavior is driven by my unconscious. So the idea that there are these things in our unconscious that make us do things, most existential therapists would be quite wary about. And they tend to work in a more descriptive way, which is helping people to explore their lives and through their lives that these things might come up, but also they may not come up. I guess another tension there is that in the existential therapies, there's also a desire to really... Uh, engage with, it, with with people in their uniqueness and their individuality. And if you're starting from the premise that there are these four ultimate things that everyone faces, everyone faces death, everyone's worried about isolation, it's not really actually leaving much space for individuality. And you're making a lot of assumptions about people that may not actually be true. So again, it kind of contradicts some of the basic principles of an existential approach. Also in terms of cultural biases, um, one of the criticisms of Yalom has been that this idea that we're all uh, fundamentally alone and that we're fundamentally free is in many ways quite a Western uh, construct. If you look at other cultures, not every culture has this anxiety about death, for instance, and some cultures are much more embracing. Now, you could say, well, that's because they don't really uh, accept it and they're actually an even more denier. But that becomes, I think, a really tricky position to hold in terms of respect for different cultures you're basically saying that you know our western culture is the right way of seeing it and that if other cultures see it in different ways it's because they're in denial i don't think anybody would certainly want to go down that route so i think the most existential therapists would accept that there's something about these existential concerns that can be of importance and that might be things that we'd work with but not that everything that goes on for clients is rooted in these concerns and yalom kind of represents a bit of a individual voice. He's very well respected in the existential field. After Frankel, he was the second most influential 
uh, of the existential writers. But I think that in terms of his particular approach, even in the States, actually, even in the existential humanistic school that he's associated with, people like Kurt Schneider, Louis Hoffman, who's done some very interesting work around cultural differences, are probably more influential. Just the last thing to say about Yalom is also his assumption that deep down we all know that life is meaningless is very much contradicted or challenged by the whole field of meaning-oriented therapies. He would argue that actually, Frankel would argue that our lives do have a meaning, that there's a fundamental meaning to our lives, and that actually therapy is not about coming to terms with uh, meaninglessness. It's about coming to recognize the meanings that they do have. So there's two very fundamentally different ontological, which means the nature of being, ontological assumptions about what existence is that, that, that differs the existential therapist. And that, that was a perfect segue because the next question I wanted was to get specifically to the question of meaning. So when obviously logotherapy was created with logos kind of, from my understanding, being Greek for, for meaning and very much centered on the question of a person, I believe it's being a meaning-seeking creature. How does the, the question or the, the relationship between an individual and their meaning in life, how does that vary across different schools of thinking within existential therapy? Well, some of the existential therapies are very focused on meaning. And there, there's a whole school of existential therapy, as you say, developed by uh, Viktor Frankl, called logotherapy initially. Sometimes people talk now more broadly about meaning-centered therapies that are very much based on the idea that people need meaning in their lives and that without meaning, people can really suffer. Or another way of looking at that is that many people who have uh, mental health problems and experience psychological distress do so because at some fundamental level, they don't have a sense of meaning and purpose. Now, I don't think it'd be true to say that that is consistent across the existential therapies. You get some versions of existential therapy like Darzine's analysis, like the work of Ardy Lang, that really don't talk that much about meaning per se at all. It's not a central approach in the therapy. But I guess most of the existential therapies, most existential practitioners would be interested in people's sense of meaning and working with clients around questions of what does their life mean. Some of those, though, would very much come from the perspective, I guess, Frankel himself was quite religious, and I think that there is those meaning-centered therapists are sometimes, not always, but are infused with more of a perhaps religious element. And sometimes the idea that our lives are given, Frankel believed that our lives, are, that each of our lives are given a meaning, uh, and that we have a, at an unconscious level, we have a sense of what that meaning is. And that the work is about connecting with that meaning. I guess there's more secular ways of understanding that, though, and that that we need a sense of meaning and purpose in life, not necessarily that there is given meaning to our lives, but that we still need to find some kind of sense of meaning. Uh, I think most existential therapists would agree that that is important to have some sense of meaning, purpose in, in, in who we are, and that when that falls away, that that can be very challenging and difficult for people. Certainly in my experience as a clinician, Sometimes problems do come down to clients not having a sense of meaning. I wouldn't say that's always true, and that is the sole source of, of problems. But even actually, Frankel doesn't claim that. But he did argue that meaning is the most fundamental human need. 
And one element, and I'd be just interested in, in hearing whether or not you agree with this premise in the first place, but for me as someone who I'm in my early 30s now, I've been dealing with persistent depression since I've been a kid. Uh, some elements are very kind of, let's just call it episodic and related to some kind of clear trigger in my life. Some elements are just kind of me swimming in this vast ocean of negativity that can last for different amounts of time. One thing I like about both the logotherapy specific view, but in general, what I'm getting uh, hints of from different aspects of existential therapy is that depression, anxiety, these aren't necessarily something that's quote unquote wrong with you, as opposed to it might be the process of rebalancing, right? These things might come up because you were in a in a place where things were balanced and now they're out of balance. And these are kind of radars to help you become aware of, hey, I'm not content with the direction of my life. And then obviously the different schools will take different approaches towards where's the starting point of unraveling this. But just this this view of certain uh, neuroses as potential positive beginnings of change, I, I just think is a very great view as opposed to the more traditional like, oh, your brain's broken, your neurochemistry is off. I think it's one of the very distinctive and like you say, perhaps most positive elements of existential therapy, that it doesn't, it's very depathologizing. And it's many of the existential philosophers, Kierkegaard, uh, Sartre, emphasize that anxiety, sadness are not necessarily signs of mental illness or problem, but are very natural human responses to the this human condition that Emmy van Derzen, the UK-based uh, leader, really, of existential therapy, has very much criticized the idea of that we have a right or we should expect everything to be happy and that, that, that we live in a culture now that the Facebook, social media, that kind of presents to us this idea that we should expect to be happy. And actually, as human beings, we are very kind of, what's the word, perhaps kind of mixed and, um, you know, we've evolved with this consciousness and Ernest Becker writes about this. We've evolved with this consciousness that has created us an awareness of our human condition. And that, that is a human condition that we die, that we're mortal, uh, that there are, as many existentialists would say, no ultimate meanings, no kind of given meanings to our life. We live in this universe that's going to end, on this planet that's going to end. We, we face political upheavals and social upheavals and injustices and, and, and oppression. And there's all these things in the world that we have, we have every right, in a sense, to feel miserable and sad. And that that's a very human response to the world that we live in. Sometimes, as you say, it's about that sadness is about losing connection with potential sources of meaning and the meaning sense of therapies would really focus on helping people find meaning. And in some senses, I mean, some of the meaning sense of people have linked more with positive psychology, people like Paul Wong, where they would take a more positive slant. But I think some of the existentialists would maybe not taking negative stance, but it's certainly melancholic. And I would count myself very much in, in, in that school of thought, really, that there's every reason to be melancholic about the world. There's every reason to be joyful and, and happy and um, in awe. Kurt Schneider, the, the American existential therapist, writes about this state of awe, that we should be in awe that being is there at all. It is an amazing thing. But the, the other side of that is being is there and it goes. And that's there's a, there's a tragic dimension to life that many of the existentialists have 
highlighted that is not pathological to recognize the tragedy of existence. And sometimes we'll feel that very deeply. And that's part of our humanity to, to recognize the, the tragic elements. And, and it's sad. There's sadness, you know, with the awe and the wonder, having children, seeing our children grow up is amazing. And also that one day we won't be with them. One day they'll die is, is, is a reality, an existential reality. And, and it's sad. It's wonderful and it's sad. And many, many of our greatest artists, not just existential artists, but artists, filmmakers, their work is so powerful because they recognize these truths about the human condition. And that's another lovely thing about existentialism. It stretches across the arts and literature and film. And, but in all cases, it's about touching on these real things about the human condition. And to ask a final question then, I realize I could have asked this as the first one and we would have spent the entire time talking about it, but at, at a, uh, in its shortest form possible, <laughs> where do you see the meaning of life being? Just an easy one to end with. I know, unfair to wait till the end. <laughs> where do I see the meaning of life being? I think it's an open question, Eugene. I don't have an answer to that. I think it lies at an individual level that uh, Sartre, Camus have talked about that we can create our own meanings and we can create our own goals and possibilities. I think in relationality that there's something about meaning. I mean, meaning, what does meaning mean? Meaning is about connections. Michael Steger, who is probably the leading American uh, researcher on meaning in life, has done some wonderful work on this. And he defines meaning as the web of connections in our, in our lives. And so I think that meaning is fundamentally linked to relatedness to others and that we find meaning in our relationships, something beyond ourselves. But then, of course, you can ask, well, what's the meaning of those larger units? And ultimately, you know, ultimately it, it, it ends, it has its boundaries somewhere. So I think the question about meaning is that there's temporary meanings, that there's meanings that we can construct. I don't think there is any given meanings. And I think that uh, some of the existential philosophers like Heidegger, Sartre, are right to say that there is no ultimate meaning to our life. And by that, they don't mean that we can't construct meanings and that we can't have meanings that are meaningful, but ultimately nothing is kind of pinned down. And I think that that creates holes. It creates gaps in a narrative that well-being is, as I was saying before, that well-being is, is, is a right or something that we should expect, that there are complex, difficult questions as human beings that are there in the fabric of our existence that means that things aren't sewn up, that you know, that there's difficult questions. And I think that means that we will, I do, and I think many of us will struggle with times of not being happy, not being satisfied, because there aren't these ultimate answers. And that's what I love about the existential therapies. That the, the, the research shows that many therapies are very, very helpful. CBT, humanistic therapies, psychodynamic therapies, they can all be very, very helpful for different clients at different times. But I think the existential therapy is the only one that really holds open these question marks about human existence per se and goes to that philosophical level of asking why we are here and its answer really is that we don't really know. And I wonder what it would be like if anybody ever actually answered that question, you know, that we actually had that answered. I think in some ways it'd be massively relieving, massively reassuring 
on another, it would be a loss of our freedom. I think I mean, if you look at existentialism historically, it emerged at a time of the wane of religion, when religion and God no longer gave all the answers to being. And for millennia, I guess, people were immersed in those religious narratives that gave a sense to their lives. And we've come out of that. And in a sense, I think as a society, as a culture, we're still struggling from Eric Fromm, who was a existential humanistic writer talks a lot about that and the growth of fascism as a as a one way that people tried to find security where religion had had waned and where that wasn't believable anymore that it gave them another sense of answers to all these questions but i think that democracy uh demands of us in a sense that we acknowledge the unanswerability or the openness of some of these questions that there aren't these finite systems, these closed systems that give us answers to everything that we have to grapple. And as as you're doing fantastically on this podcast series itself, with these questions of meaning. So I hope in your journey, Eugene, you don't find the answer. You know, I hope you keep on looking. And I think it's fantastic that you're looking and I'm sure you'll grapple towards different possibilities and different perspectives. But I think that there, there isn't an ultimate answer yet. As far as I know and, and understand and i think that's a good place to be and i think democracy pluralism allows us to have multiple answers to that question maybe it's even defined as some of the pluralist philosophers like isaiah berlin would say it's defined by having multiple answers to the question of what ultimate meaning ultimately is that that is what a democracy is that it doesn't define it doesn't tie us down with any one answer to that question well Mick, thank you so much for for joining us today and kicking off what will hopefully be a long-term journey of trying to at least add more color uh, and conversation around this topic where there there probably is no easy answer. And I'll make sure to link to your book, to your website. Is there anywhere in specific you want to be found online or are those two enough? I think if people come to my uh, website, which is mick-cooper.co.uk, there's a lot of materials around different areas that I've worked on. My latest book is on um, called Integrating Counseling and Psychotherapy, Directionality, Synergy and Social Change. I can just about remember that title. covers questions of goals and meaning and purpose, and I, I kind of explore it there. And My book on existential therapies looks at the different existential approaches to therapy, but th- that can all be found on my website or also my university page at the University of Roehampton has links to a lot of my research. But it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Eugene. Good luck with the podcast series. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. On Meaning is created by me, Eugene Leventhal. You can reach out at onmeaningpodpod at gmail.com or you can find me with the handle of on meaning pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for now. Special thanks goes out to Michael Butler, who has been lending a helping hand with some things as I've been getting the podcast started. You can also check out our website, onmeaningpod.com, to learn more information about the podcast or any events that we'll be putting out. Until next time, be well and speak soon. <laughs>